Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this special recording of Word on the Street, we discuss the latest developments in the European banking sector and whether confidence in global banks is at a tipping point. With Sarah Gresty, Head of Investments, and Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Monday and another special edition of Word on the Street. We are stepping up the frequency of our podcast in order to cover the rapidly evolving news related to the global banking sector. Well, let's start off with the latest. Credit Suisse has been merged with UBS over the weekend as the former ended last week limping ever so more visibly. What are the details here? Yes. Hello, Sarah. Hello, everybody. Um, You are right. The two Swiss banking behemoths, Credit Suisse and UBS, agreed a merger over the weekend with UBS seemingly the, well, not seemingly, UBS is the surviving entity. This is perceived as a bit of a sort of shotgun wedding in truth, to use kind of slang with Credit Suisse's uh, confidence problem, the unwarranted unwarranted, unwanted child in this equation. Um, The deal also includes support from the Swiss federal government, the Swiss Financial Market Supervisory Authority, easy for me to say, and the Swiss National Bank. So the Swiss National Bank will offer a liquidity line of I think it's 100 billion Swiss francs. I don't know if that's Such a large number. Large numbers everywhere. And I think that's really the point. Um, and that's, that, that is backed by federal default guarantee, while the Swiss federal government also has sort of provided a loss guarantee of up to 9 billion Swiss francs. Again, just big numbers everywhere. Uh, and I think that's really what I'm trying to convey is that the authorities are trying to really sort of m- uh, move the market and get sort of, you know, the confidence crisis on. So more details will emerge over the next few days. But the deal, like I say, is aimed at providing investors with some clarity over direct and indirect exposures to Credit Suisse amidst that sort of fairly rapidly deteriorating situation of the last the last week or so. But markets still seem quite wobbly. Yes, you are right, Sarah. Yeah, sort of wobbly up and down. Sort of one of the wrinkles of the deal that was traded quite heavily in Asia overnight and this morning, and has certainly raised some questions in the European Open, uh, is the treatment of something called AT1 Capital in this deal. It stands for additional tier one, in case you're wondering. I know you know this like the back of your hand. But if you remember, um, this is a form of something called contingent convertible, born in the last crisis, the last, uh, the great financial crisis, a kind of extra year, extra balance sheet buffer. Basically, a bank issued security that starts off as debt uh, or credit, offering you a yield, but depending on the terms and conditions, it can convert into equity or be written down entirely contingent as the word would imply, uh, on certain pre-agreed thresholds, such as a level of bank capital strength. This is an asset class that has proved particularly popular in the Asian private banks and asset managers, by all accounts. The extra yield luring luring many during that sort of previous cycle's endless hunt for that, um, that extra yield. Now, in that context... The fact that the UBS merger will, will trigger a, a complete write-down of Credit Suisse's USD-denominated, US dollar-denominated AT1 bonds, effectively subordinating AT1 bondholders to equity, which in itself is causing a bit of uproar amongst credit investors, as I'm sure you can imagine. It also represents the largest ever loss inflicted to AT1 investors since the birth of the asset class, post-global financial crisis. 
Now, I guess the sort of question mark that we're in, the place where we're living in, is is our investors going to treat this decision as a one-off or, or, or are they going to begin to think, rethink their holdings in the context of the evolving bank crisis concerns? Well, that remains to see, be, be seen, but it's certainly becoming harder to assess what risk you are really getting into with that extra yield pickup implicit in 81. Uh, and that may create some unwanted waves as we're seeing this morning. New information, or more, more specifically, new uncertainty is being incorporated into asset prices. I think that's the way I'd put it. Quite uh, quite wonky, but yes. Wonky, wobbly. Yes, I wonky. see. I see I see the trends. Yes. Um maybe now <laughs> if we could move to the wider European banking sector. Yes. Is that something that could hurt and undermine more broadly? Well, I mean, I think the first thing we have to note is that the Swiss regulatory treatment of this area is distinct from the rest of Europe. Yep. Elsewhere, equity is subordinate, I believe. So people are obviously getting much more into the paperwork now. And that is being reiterated quite loudly and widely by the authorities this morning. For the European banks, it's important to remember that Credit Suisse I mean, it really was an outlier in performance terms going into this crisis. So while much of the rest of the European sector had been looking, you know, increasingly sprightly, actually, uh, Credit Suisse had been mired in, in, in several issues. The bank was loss making in 2020 and, uh, and 2021. The October strategies uh, update, you know, that came with a giant equity raise. So the management coming to, you know, to, to shareholders for more money and quite a big turnaround, uh, you know, plan announced with the aim of trying to refocus on core activities. You know, it was a big restructuring plan. Now, the wider European banking sector, like I say, entered this crisis in much better shape on average and still offers very reassuring metrics on paper on both liquidity and capital and with plenty of buffer to the regulatory minimums, if you think about it. So room to for things to deteriorate before it gets close to the line. That's not a guarantee. There are no problems ahead. Of course, never is, never could be. But again, we should feel you know reassured that the starting point is very, very different to the problems of 2007, 2008, both in terms of what we can see on paper in terms of the metrics but also the degree of regulatory scrutiny those metrics you know those metrics have been and numbers have been subjected to yeah so yes i think it's i think it's different that's the that's so, the core message so different but would it be fair to say some of these market moves are still with some justification. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I think that's right. So I think, you know, if you think of what's been going on in this last week or so, and it's another one of those weeks where decades seems to have happened, doesn't it? But it, it, it's, I would, uh, you know, the risks of a global recession have gone up in the last week. And, and as you know, we thought those risks were a little bit underappreciated as we entered this period anyway. However, this last week of jitters makes those recession odds a little higher still. I think the point here is that there's a link, really, and that is that the rapid implosions of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature will have changed risk appetite in a vital segment of the U.S. banking system. The sheer speed of deposit flight is is kind of breathtaking, even if those are very sort of very specific situations, SVB and uh, and Signature. So. But you did have, you know, and this is a reminder, you know, you and I were just talking about the difference between physical and a digital stampede. It's estimated that First Republic, which was one of the other banks that started, people started to worry about in the US, bled around around half of their uninsured deposits in the space of three days. This is no longer the time of Mary Poppins. Yeah, or, I love your Mary Poppins references. I know, but it's quite a good example. But there you actually have to have people banging on the doors of the bank to try and withdraw their money. But that's not the case now. You, you know, you know, there's a physically queue. And that combined with sort of social media and the ability to create news quite quickly 
the result, if you think about that, across the small and medium-sized banking sector, which is a very important part of the US economy that accounts for 80% of commercial real estate loans and roughly half of all bank loans in the US is for those, uh, those particular banks. We think the authorities have done enough to prevent widespread deposit flight. However, like a slower bleed in deposits and accompanying clamming up in lending intentions, that'll be harder to dam up and will have economic consequences if you think about it, even if it's not a repeat of the global financial crisis, but I still firmly believe that's not the case. And the same is to a degree true in a very different way of Europe. You know, like I say, there's there's no, I don't think there's kind of SVBs in Europe or the equivalent necessarily, but what you tend to find is share price declines and wholesale funding cost increases. So the lifeblood of the banking sector Sector, that tends to translate into lending intentions. So you should see, uh, you know, lending credit conditions tighten up. That's kind of what the central bankers are aiming for, in truth, but just probably a little bit more sharply than might have been part of the plan. But this is, yeah. It's interesting, isn't it, how quickly everything's changing. So maybe in that context, would you expect this week's central bank meetings to be different to what they might have been only a week or so ago? Yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, I, you know, you, this is the thing about sort of monetary policy, isn't it? We've talked about for a while about something's going to break. That's what happens when you when you sort of raise interest rates very sharply. And in the US, they went up, you know, 500 basis points in the space of a few months, real interest rates go up at the two-year level, which is amazing. That's the kind of move that happens every year, it's not months. So the expectation is that you're going to put stress on the banking, on, on, the, you know, on the financial system. That's part of the point. But what you get to is that the effects become non-linear in a way. So you don't just get, you start to get this situation where you get sort of little crises and pockets of stuff, and then it becomes about crisis management. And how can you make sure that it doesn't turn into a much bigger crisis or a much bigger downturn than you than you need to be able to cool inflation? And yeah, I mean, I have to admit, like looking at this week, I mean, I, I would usually be, and speaking to the team as well, we would usually be quite reluctant to sort of place big bets on what central banks are going to do in one week or another. You know, However many times I ask you. Yeah, yeah I try and dodge it as I still am. I think I, w- I, w- I would say it's even more uncertain. I mean, Bank of England, you know, people had feel a bit more strongly or had been feeling a bit more strongly that... The Bank of England is closer to the end of their rate rising cycle. And part of that is this kind of huge mortgage refinancing burden the UK has got to do and to chew through in the next few years. The Federal Reserve is a bit different. I can see arguments for stopping here for the moment and just waiting and seeing to what, what sort of comes out. It's going to be fascinating to watch, I have to admit. And I think the point that I would get across is a bit of humility here. I don't think there's a way of reliably second guessing what happens at the meetings this week. So it's a matter of watching very carefully and seeing how the language inflects. And certainly we saw from, you know, the ECB, the European Central Bank last week, they went ahead with their 50 basis point increase, but the language associated changed quite a bit. They started to move a bit more cautious with regards to what they're looking at in future rate rise terms and sort of started talking about data dependency, which is a key kind of way of sort of of maybe backing off a little bit. That's the way I'd interpret it. Okay. So let's keep an eye. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Will. Any final messages for our clients? Yes. I mean, I think as usual, Sarah, I mean, I think the main message is to sort of, you know, is to get across that we're on it. You know, you've got, this is where I think we have a real advantage in many ways. Very lucky. You and I are very lucky enough to represent like huge teams of dedicated specialists who are responsible, not just all of them, looking at overall stuff that's kind of you know the bit i 
I'm one of the ones who gets to look at all of the stuff together, but lots of different bits of the value chain. So, you know, you think of the guys who are just focusing on the tactical asset allocation. Those guys are there to look for any opportunities that come about with market pricing moving as fast as it is. At the moment, you know, we're sort of, you know, we've actually sort of a bit of taken a few positions off just because we got the opportunity to, but we're still underweight emerging market equity, overweight developed market equity, and a few other bits aside that. But it's not just that. It's, you know, across the fund selection, across everywhere. We've got lots of people looking at it and making sure that these are the sort of optimal exposures. The other point is just remember, you know, just like you can't go down the bookies and sort of expect new information not to be incorporated into prices. That's the same as markets. Markets are moving to incorporate new information. You've got to work very hard to get that edge. And that's why we've got those specialists. And more broadly, you know, this is the time when it's just so important to keep your focus on the horizon, not get dragged into the sort of, you know, the the mud, essentially, which is always the present. It's very, it's always disorienting, isn't it? I mean, it's just looking around and I've been looking at this markets for 20 odd years and it's still when things like this happen, you're sort of grappling to understand where it is. That can be very unnerving, but the trick of investing is just sticking with it because it's productivity that drives your returns, not being able to get in and out wholesale. And most of the time, it's just about being in it to win it. That's a self-serving message as usual, but it is very important, I feel. Okay, it's a good message to end on. So thank you, Will. Thank you, listeners, for joining us for another Word on the Street. Speak to everybody again soon. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.